Amen. Good to see you today. As we continue our study through 2 Samuel, I've really enjoyed this time through 2 Samuel. David is one of the most fascinating people in history, for sure. And so 2 Samuel goes into details about his years as king. And we've been following along, and it's really uh, some fascinating stuff. But some of it's difficult as well. 2 Samuel 20, David has just endured a civil war. He had, you know, his own son try to overthrow the kingdom, come after him, wanting to kill him. But finally, his son was killed. He was grieved, but he maintained the throne, and he's heading back to Jerusalem to settle in, but he's really kind of exhausted too, you know? He's been through a lot. So after enduring one civil war, though, the country's in kind of bad shape, you know? There are 12 tribes of Israel, and the 10 northern tribes always kind of feel left out. And so now, at this point, they're wondering, well, where do we fit in? It's easy for David from the tribe of Judah. Judah's the big tribe. But they were like, after a civil war, quite often, in fact, in our country, let's face it, the South never did quite get over the civil war to a degree. You're like, you're still looking down on the people from the North, people in the North still looking it down on the people in the South. That's kind of the tragedy of civil war is that when the war is over, there's still a division that happens. And that was certainly the case in Israel for sure. And so, but now another guy comes along who you just got rid of one guy who was trying to take over and he was doing it for, for personal reasons. That was Absalom. But now another guy comes along to take advantage of the situation, and he wants to take over the whole 10 northern tribes. He wants to be king, and he's not doing it for personal reasons. He's just doing it for political reasons. He just has this ambition that he wants to be somebody, and so he anoints himself to say, okay, now I'm in charge in the north. And that brings us to chapter 20. And I have to warn you, okay, that, you know, history is ugly if it's it's true. If you clean up history, it's misleading. But if you really look at history, there's a lot of weird, ugly things that go on in history. And there's some kind of disgusting or gross things. So I'm just warning you in advance. I'm not going to show any pictures or anything, but it's the Bible. The Holy Spirit wrote it, not me. So I'm just warning you. If you're some sensitive person who might get triggered by some of this, oh well, take it up with God, or you can leave now. I'm just warning you. So, chapter 20. There happened to be a rebel whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew a trumpet and said, We have no share in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel." So every man of Israel, that is the ten northern tribes, deserted David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah from the Jordan as far as Jerusalem remained loyal to their king. Now it's kind of weird. This guy's from, you know, the tribe of Benjamin, which would normally be aligned with David. But he saw an opportunity to gather the people up in the north who were disgruntled. And, you know, it's easy to to take power if you try to find everybody who's upset and get them on your side. It's a lot harder to actually pull it off. But this is what Sheba's trying to do. 
Again, nobody anointed him. He just took it upon himself. So David came to his house in Jerusalem. And the king, this is kind of ugly, but he took the ten women, his concubines, whom he had left to keep the house, and put them in seclusion and supported them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up to the day of their death, living in widowhood. So he gets back to Jerusalem, and there were these ten concubines that he had left to take care of the house. But if you remember the story, his son Absalom had gone in and and defiled them in public. So David comes back like, how do you deal with this? And what he did seems sort of cruel. It's like they didn't choose this. Now all of a sudden, they are put on the side in retirement. They're not going to have relations with anybody ever again. But remember, in those days, for one thing, the Jewish law would forbid David from going into them again. See, once, of course, the law forbid what Absalom did, but the law would also forbid David ever again taking them back. So in essence, though, what he did was pretty kind. He could have just kicked them out. That would be normally what you would do. And nobody would have taken them in and they would have died in disgrace. Instead, he put them on a retirement program. He gave them a place to stay. He would take care of them. It's just that he wouldn't have physical relations with them. A lot of women would snap up that kind of a deal. But at any rate, it's just that's what they did. And then the king said to Amasa, assemble the men of Judah for me within three days and be present here yourself. So David knew. Sheba's doing a rebellion. We need to get our armies together and we need to go and take them out. Now, why did he call Amasa and not Joab? If you remember in the previous chapter, I mean, Joab has been his guy for you know, basically their entire adult lives. And Joab was a crusty dude, but a good soldier. Now, after this whole thing with with Absalom, you know, the problem is, like, David's trying to unify Israel. So in the previous chapter, one of the things he did is he took Absalom's general, Amasa, who got hired by Absalom partly because he was like a distant relative of Joab's. So it's kind of like he hadn't done anything himself, but he was related to somebody. And so, you know, how that goes. Well, David ends up saying, I'm going to make Amasa the main general now. When you think about it, that was really a dumb thing to do. Because, I mean, he had had one war that he fought, and they got crushed, and his king got hung and stabbed. So why would you put him in charge? Because David was trying to be political, He was hoping that, and it actually kind of worked in the previous chapter. Once he puts Amasa in charge of the armies, a lot of these people who kind of didn't like Joab, people in the north who were scared of Joab, they're like, oh, good. And so they kind of gathered together. But the northerners were so flaky that as soon as you have another guy, Sheba, saying, okay, I'm going to be the king of the north, then they go with him anyway. So the point of having Amasa become general was really a bad idea all around. But he tells Amasa, okay, get the armies together. We're going to go chase down Sheba. And Amasa in verse 5 went to assemble the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time which David had appointed him. He didn't know what to do. Come on, he's no general. You just gave him that title. And so in three days, he's like, wow, I wonder how I do this. How do I gather an army? And it's time to go. 
They couldn't wait. David said to Abishai, Joab's brother, who was like his, David's bodyguard, he said, now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us, do us more harm even than Absalom. We can't wait on this. We can't just dink around hoping that Amasa will somehow get things together. Every day we lose is another opportunity for us to lose. So take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he find he himself fortified cities and escape us. So he, tells, he doesn't tell Joab, he tells Abishai, you better go after this guy. But of course, Abishai gets his brother Joab and he goes, come on, we got a job to do. So you get the team back together and they're heading out. Now, this is, uh, becomes ugly. Joab's men with the Cherethites, the Pelethites, the, you know, the, the guys who were some of the soldiers, and, and he said, and all the mighty men. So these guys were archers and slingers, basically, is who these two guys, groups were. And all the mighty men went out after him, after Sheba. And they went out of Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And when they were at the large stone, which is in Gibeon, so they're like more than halfway there, Amasa shows up. Like he's still wearing his general costume and stuff. But he doesn't know what he's doing. So Joab was dressed in battle armor. He was ready to do battle. And on his armor was a belt with a sword fastened in its sheath at his hips. And as he was going forward, it fell out. Wait, Joab, he accidentally dropped his sword? Might be a good idea for you to back up a little bit, but no, he doesn't do that. Joab says to Amasa, hey, are you in good health, my brother? He was a relative. And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand like he was going to kiss him, but he came up with the sword and struck him with it in the stomach that Hebrew word for stomach there is a little lower than the stomach, but they try to make it polite. And his entrails poured out on the ground, and he did not strike him again. He only hit him once, <laughs> so he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, began to chase Sheba, the son of Bichri. Meanwhile, all these men are following along, the army, and when they got near Amasa, he's laying there in the middle of the road, and they're like, oh... And they're saying, look, either follow Joab or sit here, you know, with the dying guy. But Amethyst's like making a mess in the middle of the highway. And so they dragged him off the road and covered him up with a garment. And then everybody goes, yeah, I guess we're on Joab's side. After they got him out of the highway, everyone took off to chase Sheba. And so in verse 14, he went through all the tribes of Israel to Abel and Bethmaach and all the Barites. So he, heads, he ends up going to this city called Abel. Abel was a city that was known as a peaceful place. People would go there to resolve their difficulties. There were some wise people there apparently, and they were peaceful. They didn't jump into fights. And so he thought, that's a good place for me to hide out. So he went there. And so they came in verse 15 and besieged him in Abel of Beth Maaca. And they cast up a siege around against the city, and it stood by the rampart. So they built a ramp, and they began to build some kind of a wall so that now this city is ready to be under attack. Nobody gets in, nobody goes out. And all the people who were with Joab battered the wall to throw it down. It's like they're going to take down this whole city in order to get this renegade fake king. But then... 
One of the most fascinating people in the Bible, so I, I should probably teach on this for Mother's Day, but she was a wise woman. She was also a mom. The word there for wise woman, she was probably one of the leaders. She was probably like the mayor of the city. So she was very well respected and she was there at the city. And she came out and said, she yelled out, please tell Joab to come here and I want to speak with him. Like she knew Joab was the guy. If you want to get anything done, you better talk to Joab. So she goes, send Joab. And Joab came and she goes, are you Joab? And he said, I am. And then she said to him, hear the words of your maidservant. And he goes, I'm listening. Verse 18, so she spoke saying, they used to talk in former times saying, they shall surely seek guidance at Abel. And so they would end disputes. They go, remember the city Abel, they used to say, this is a place where you could come and work things out. This was a place where you, should nego- you could negotiate. And now what I want to do is negotiate. She said, I am among the peaceable and faithful in Israel. I'm a good Jew. I only want peace. It looks like you're trying to destroy a city and a mother in Israel. I love that. She's like, look, I'm just a mom, but I'm trying to fix this. I'm trying to help here. And so why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? Why do you want to destroy all of this? And why do you want to destroy me, frankly? And Joab said, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. I'm not trying to destroy you or your people or your city. He goes, that's not the way it is. But there's a man from the mountains of Ephraim, Sheba, the son of Bichri by name, has raised his hand against the king, against David. You claim to be loyal to Israel. This guy is going against David, our king. So he said, deliver him only. All all I want is him. And I will depart from the city. And so the woman said to Joab, I like this girl, watch. His head will be thrown to you over the wall. That's like, whoa. You know, she's a mom, she's a woman, but you don't mess with her either. And so she went back in, in her wisdom, gathered all the people together, and they go, look, this guy isn't worth it. So they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. It's like, like a field goal just coming across. <laughs> and so... They're like, awesome. They blew a trumpet. They withdrew from the city, every man to his tent. So Joab returned to the king at Jerusalem. Another job fulfilled. Another civil war averted. And one guy lost his head, that's all. And this woman becomes like my hero forever. So then the last three verses or so are interesting because it, it lists people and their jobs. They had, Joab was over all the army of Israel. After that, nobody goes, I want to be general. They're like, no, 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 you're, you're the man. Um, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, the slingers and you know, the archers. And so Adoram was in charge of revenue. It's kind of weird that they're listing these people in this context, but I'll explain why I think they did. Adoram was in charge of basically the IRS. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. So he was the guy that kept all the legal records. Shiva was scribe. He was like the secretary to David. When David wanted to do something or correspondence, he would write it. 
And Zadok and Abiathar were the priests. They were running the worship there at the tabernacle in Jerusalem. And then Ira, the Jairite, was a chief minister under David. Really, it means it says that he was a priest to David. David couldn't always go, you know, take cuts at the temple whenever he, at the tabernacle whenever he needed something. So he had this guy like as his chaplain in a way. He was just there. He could pray with David. He could listen to him in confidence. And so all of these people had jobs. And it's interesting that they're all listed here because when I look at this chapter, I go, everything in the Bible is here for us. Scriptures make that very clear. These are examples for us. So what do we learn from chapter 20 of 2 Samuel? And I mean, obviously there's a lot of letters in here. Like if a guy drops a sword in front of you, take a step back, (laughs) don't hug him. But really what I see overall in this chapter is something that's super important throughout scripture. And that is you need to make sure that everybody is in their place. Everyone knows where they belong, what their calling is, what their job is, and everyone will, will do better if each of us knows, here's my role, here's my responsibility, here's my calling. It's devastating for people who, in your life, you go, I don't even know who I am and, and what I'm supposed to do. Or... I'm trying to be something that I'm not because somebody pushed me into it or because there was some, uh, you know, I had some obsession with it or, what, or I had the opportunity. Um, things only work when everyone kind of knows what their place is and they all do what it is that they're called to do. It, and the same thing with everybody in this chapter. It becomes clear, like, okay, you have, on the one hand, there's a, a guy that wants to be king, <laughs> Sheba. That wasn't his job. That was a bad idea for him to have the ambition to be king. Amasa, out of place. Maybe a good guy, not the sharpest guy, not the greatest sense of awareness of what was going on, certainly not suited, suitable to be a general, to lead an army. So both of those guys got out of place and it didn't work. Now, David is a guy who was totally in his place, God had anointed him and he was king. And even with all of his weakness and all of his problems, he was still the best guy to rule over Israel. Then you have Joab. Joab's a general. There's a lot of things that you wouldn't like about Joab. But it's pretty clear when it came down to it, you want somebody to lead you into a war. You want someone who is willing to put his life on the line over and over again, and he's good at it. That's Joab. This woman, you could do better. I mean, how could you do any better than to have a woman like this in a position of influence? She's smart. She's tough. She's a good communicator. She knows who to talk to. She was amazing. That city was so lucky to have her. And so, and then with this whole list of people at the end of the chapter, I think one reason why this list is here is because it's like, Here are a bunch of people doing what they were called to do. Here are people who found their niche, who found their place, and they were fulfilling their calling. And when that happens and everything comes together, it's amazing. Now, every one of us, there are all kinds of potential positions that we could seek or pursue. You know, it's not like you just fall into it and there's only one thing. Sorry, you're either this or nothing. 
There are a ton of options for all of us, and yet going through life is partly the process of working your way through and finding out, okay, who did God really design me to be? What is it that is really my place? Now, as you're younger, you start, you know, you start imagining all sorts of different things, but eventually, if you just pay attention, the Spirit of God is working in your life, and you end up realizing that, wow, I see where I am today, and this is really who I am. I don't need to try to be somebody else. I, I've found my place. The Bible talks about spiritual gifts and the idea that everyone has a certain you know, capacity and, and certain abilities and everyone has gifts. And that, that way everyone is needed because everyone has a place. But finding out what your place is, finding out what your gifts are, it sometimes can be really stressful. But at the same time, if it doesn't happen, nothing works the way it's supposed to work. Everything becomes disastrous. You can completely ruin your life trying to be somebody that you aren't. You can completely miss opportunities because you were trying to be somebody else instead of the person who would have been perfect for this position. I think also in this respect, well, we all need to find our calling. Like, who am I really supposed to be? Who am I when I'm really in my groove, when I'm really where I'm supposed to be. Who am I at that point? And to you know, do the best you can at that and to accept that and appreciate that. I, I hear people all the time who come to me and they're like, I just feel like I should be doing more than I am for God. You know, who's to say that what you're doing for God isn't exactly what he wants you to do? It's not about how can I get the best, most prominent, how can I make a difference to the most people? No, it's like you do what you're doing. There's a really good chance that you're already doing that. It's just a question of whether or not you feel like, wow, this is really who God has made me to be. That's how I ended up in this position. Now, a warning, there is something that in, they call the Peter principle in, biz, in business. A guy named Peter made this up, but it, it's, a, it's a, an expression that says, you will always be promoted to your level of incompetency. That is, eventually, and you know this, you've seen people who are really good at their job, so then they become a manager. Then they're not quite as good at that, but they've been around a lot and people want to get rid of them, so then they make them the president or whatever. It's just like, (laughs) get rid of this guy. As much as possible, you want to avoid the Peter principle. That means because someone offers you a change, don't assume that that change is a positive one. Like, Sheba's life could have been so much better if he didn't decide he should be king. Amasa could have, if, he, if David had said, I want you to be the general, if he had goes, look, I'm no Joab. Let me be a lieutenant. I'll work with him. I'll support him. What a different outcome it could have been. But when the Peter principle kicks in, all of a sudden, you get people expecting you to be something that you aren't. And you even have this feeling like, I should be excited about this, but you know what? I liked my life better when I was younger. When I saw a poll a few years ago where they polled married couples who were, you know, they were like in their 50s and 60s. And they asked them when they were most happy in their life. And almost always, they said, when we were young, our kids were small, we were struggling, we weren't sure how we were gonna make it financially, and those were the best times. See, 
Just getting things easier doesn't necessarily put you in a place that's actually better for you or better for anyone else. It's like people will be looking at you and how did you ever get to here? And you're like, I don't know. I actually liked it a lot better when I was doing what I was doing at that point. Making the decision to limit yourself so that you can maintain who you really are is huge. I have a son, my son, oldest son, William, who's like one of the smartest, most gifted people I know in the world. And he's a civil engineer. And he really easily could have built his civil engineering firm up huge. But instead, he goes, you know, I want to be able to make a living, have a house, support my family, but I also want to go surfing. I want to take my kids on vacations. I want to do... And so he intentionally chose to limit the size of his business so that it could support him without him having a whole bunch of people that he had to support from it. And I'm like, I'm so proud of him because he made that choice. And I think, how many people could make that choice? Or do you always think you just need one more customer, you need one more of this, one bigger of that? No, figure out who you are and how can you do what you do faithfully? And that ends up becoming more important than anything else. And so, you know, you look at these guys and see what happens one way or the other. Now, another thing that comes along with this is, if I know what my calling is, I should be really careful about criticizing other people for what their calling is. Like, okay, this person may be called to be a general. It's been disastrous at different times in our country's history when it was decided that civilians should tell soldiers how to do battle. Now, of course, you look at certain things that are done and you can go, oh, that's, that's awful. There are always consequences. God holds those who are in positions to be responsible, but the best way to do war is not to bring in somebody that's a civilian to tell the soldiers what to do. At some point, you have to let them do their job because that's what they do. And sometimes, like with Joab, it might be ugly. Sometimes you may look at it and go, oh. The same thing goes for people in law enforcement. It's just ridiculous when, you know, now they're like, okay, defund the police. Don't let them do what they do. We need to put strict rules on them. We had one public servant, you know, who suggested that why do they have to shoot people who are committing crimes. Can't, can't they just shoot them in the leg? And it's like, if you've ever been on a shooting course and seen how, that's absurd, that's ridiculous. Somebody who's shot in the leg can still shoot you back. But that's what happens when people who don't have that calling think that they can tell other people how to do what they do. The same thing goes for people telling teachers how to teach, people telling pastors how to pastor. It's like, look, if you want to become an expert in that, go to school get your education, and then you'll have something to offer. But don't get out of your calling in order to try to fix somebody else's. Because when I look at these guys, I go, I would have done that a lot different. But I'm not a general. I'm not a woman who is the mayor of a city making a tough decision like this. I'm, I'm not any of these things. I have to do what I do. And the wisest thing is to be satisfied with that. Now, there is, and that means also, by the way, it's never perfect. We're designed to function, like in the church, we're designed to function as a body. Um, Everyone has roles, everyone has parts to play, and that's really true and that's really important. However, 
when you begin to criticize other people, like Paul talks about that, like one part of the body pointing a finger at another part of the body, it gets messy. We have to trust people who are in a position to do their jobs. And we can't just take pot shots at them from the sidelines. It just weakens all of us. Now, there may be people, I know people who, they're just out there looking for pastors who fail and exposing them and everything. And I don't take a shot at people like that. I go, okay, if that's what you believe that is your calling, that's fine. But for me, I'm like, I have more important things to do than to tell somebody else how to do their job. And I know there are consequences. If somebody's living their lives in a, in a destructive way, it'll all fall, fall apart on them anyway. It doesn't need me to point the finger and to be critical. Because if I'm criticizing somebody else for the way they do their job, I'm actually not doing my job unless my job is actually to tell other people what to do. I get lots of advice from people about pastoring a church, for instance. But it's generally, in fact, it's almost inverse proportion. The less somebody knows about ministry, the more eager they are to tell somebody else how to do it. And like in our world, people think that, oh, everybody in the church should decide what the church does, and everybody, you know, the pastor just works for everyone else, and it's like, that doesn't work. Now, at the same time, I look at pastors whose egos get a hold of them, and they're, they can be cruel to people and everything, and I don't like that, but I know that God will bring consequences to people who do that. I'm not going to be the one to try to take them down. God will do that just fine. But I, but I think that, you know, often when we get into the situation, if all the time I spend criticizing the government for doing what government does, the police for doing what police do, the military for doing what they do, other churches for doing what they do, it shows my own ignorance, but it also means that's time away from me doing what I'm called to do. And it's really important. You know, in, in churches, you, you puff somebody up. In fact, you, you promote and support somebody who's just, they're so ravaged with testosterone that whew, it gets huge. And then you're like surprised when the testosterone kicks in. It's just, no, that's kind of the way it is, man. Joab's going to be Joab. I, I remember Pastor Romaine who, I mean, he can be really mean at times. He can be really sweet at other times. But God help us if we had tried to have a big church without having a guy like that who was going around offending people. It was so important. You know, did I always think, boy, that's great that he's doing it? No. But in retrospect, now that he's with the Lord, and I realize how few people are willing to go out there and be Joabs, and I'm like, yeah, I do. I miss him greatly. We need some of that. But for any of us, we have to find, where do I fit? We can't expect everything to be perfect, or then we just become like a Mexican standoff where everyone's facing each other and shooting each other. We've got to go, I need to do what I do, and I want to find out where I fit. And in the end, success happens. Success comes when most of us are doing what we're called to do. When we're not tearing apart other people for the way they're doing what they do, when we're not trying to do somebody else's job, but we're just going, you know what? I know what my niche is, and I'm going to do the best I can to do that. I heard somebody told me this week that, that somebody in their family had got mad and left our church because 
I said something good about Dr. Fauci. And I'm like, I, I mean, I'm not a big fan of Dr. Fauci. But I looked back to see what I had said. And what I said was, there was a guy who was a high school dropout who told me Fauci was an idiot. And I said, he graduated number one in the Cornell Medical School class 50 years ago. He's not an idiot. Oh, you want to tell me he's the Antichrist or whatever? Fine. But <laughs> no. And somebody's so offended that like, oh no, we have to put this person in their place. I don't know, you know, one one hundredth of what experts know about all kinds of things. And just because I can Google something or watch some stupid YouTube video or chat GPT told me, that doesn't make me an expert. I'm an expert at one thing, being me. And for every one of us, if we can just go, you know, I'm going to be the best version of me that I can, and I'm going to let God worry about all the other stuff, it's amazing what can happen. It's amazing how much good can come about. Obviously, what the devil loves to do to people is get them doing somebody else's job instead of their own. Or get them feeling like, oh, my job doesn't matter. It doesn't. I mean, this morning after first service, um, Dennis and Shelley DeMays talked to me and they said, yeah, you know, they're, they're kind of tripping out because, like, mostly what they do with their lives now is take vacations. Their kids are raised, their grandkids are getting older. And so they take vacations and they go, I guess that's what my niche is. And I go, Dennis, every week when, like, on Instagram, I look at your pictures. They were last week in Brian Head, and it was just gorgeous. It was beautiful. They're there enjoying their grandkids and skiing and everything. I go, don't you understand that this week I couldn't go to Brian Head, but I can look at your pictures. I'm telling you, it makes me want to go. It makes me happy that you're going. Sometimes if you're just being you, you're amazed at how much fruitfulness can come from you just being you. But of course, what the devil wants to do is make you feel like being you means nothing, and therefore, you're going to try to be something that you aren't, and you're surprised when it doesn't fit and it doesn't work. Figure out who you are. And, and believe me, chances are you're already doing what you were born to do. It's just the devil doesn't want you to believe that. And so you just think, oh no, I'm dissatisfied, I should be doing more, I, just be, be happy with what God has done in your life. He's been working all this time. And here you are at a place where you have to decide, am I? Now, there may be things that God is telling you, changes that you need to make in your life. If what you're doing isn't working, then it would be foolish not to make changes. But at the same time, start with the assumption that what if God has been leading you all this time? Now, sometimes you look at your life and go, how could God have been leading me through all of the pain and suffering that I've been through, even the pain that I've caused others, all the loss and everything else? You go, I don't know, how could God have been leading me? Really? Because everything you've been through qualifies you to have a different perspective. And it may have been that what you think was your dark years was the time when God was actually preparing you for what he wants to do. So I always say, assume that God knows what he's doing and he has you in a place where he wants you to be. Now, how can you do the best job that you can of being who you are in the place where you are? And it starts by accepting that, and then it carries over to other people can have other jobs, that's them, that's not me, I'm doing what I'm called to do. And to me, that's, as I read this chapter, I'm like, 
That's it. That was the difference between people who, whose lives just blew up and people who went forward and brought the nation forward at the same time. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these stories, as, as gross and uncomfortable as they might be, yet they make a point clear. Get out of place, you bring hurt and devastation. Find your place, you fit, and you build something amazing. Lord, as you were using these guys, once they found their places and you were building this nation to where its greatest years were ahead under Solomon, we would desire to be used in the same way for our lives to just be what they're supposed to be and to realize it's amazing for us to be who we are. We don't have to be somebody else. May we all just have that sense of, I know who I am. I'm doing what God's called me to do, and I'm enjoying the ride. Thanks, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.